Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and joining me from Wyoming, Rosa Brooks. From Hi, David. Vermont. Hi, from Vermont. David Sanger. Boo. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) And from Edinburgh at the Fringe Festival, on the fringe of the Fringe Festival, um, Corey Shockey. (laughs) Have you heard any good jokes at the Fringe Festival, Corey? I mean, is there any good humor there? Or is it just marinating yourself in the local uh, uh, product? The... The number of comedians performing all over Edinburgh is just fabulous at the Fringe Festival. And yes, a whole bunch of good humor. Since you were trying to get my goat last time, David, it was thanks to the nerd who did that. It was super nice. Uh, of, of Corey's goat. Yeah. No, yes. no, I'd like, I'd li- I'd li- I'd like the picture of Corey's goat. I love our nerds. They have a very good sense of humor and way too much time on their hands. Um, <laughs> But, you know, that's why they listen to us. Um, we're, we're grateful for that. So one of the things the United States did this week, uh, the president, uh, 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 you know, uh, signed off on this, was that we, we uh, uh, embraced a new defense budget um, uh, authorizing $716 billion for our nation's defense. Uh, interestingly, and in showing the great class that he's got, the president, while announcing this uh, at a military base, uh, neglected to mention that the bill was mentioned, named after John McCain, dying of cancer in, in, in Arizona, uh, didn't even mention his name. But, you know, who, if, if, if he, you know, he wasn't all class, he would be nothing at all, right? But, but let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the, the idea behind this, because essentially... Trump has made the argument, the Republican Party has supported the argument, that we need to spend more on defense uh, than we have been spending on defense, which was more than anybody else was spending on defense. Um, And arguably, uh, you know, since it's the largest discretionary item in the budget, takes money away from infrastructure, education, health care, retirement, and, and other kind of pressing social needs. And I thought since all of you are experts on one area of this or not or another, we might start our discussion today with a discussion of uh, how do we feel about having this gigantic budget for defense at this particular moment in time? Corey. Well, I am uh, fine with having a $700 billion defense budget at this time, because I think the administration, both in the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, acknowledge that we are facing uh, growing threats 
from adversaries who are adapting in different ways. The Chinese at the high end, the Russians at the at the low hybrid end of warfare, and we need to up our game. What I am not uh, supportive of is the fact that we are going to run a $1 trillion a year deficit as a result of this defense budget. David, the only thing I would disagree with you on is that this isn't an administration that was going to spend money on infrastructure or or kindergarten breakfasts for needy families if they didn't spend it on defense. That they... So, good good point, Corey. Yeah, you were giving them too much credit. Um, And the collapse of support, in particular from conservatives, for responsible federal spending that does not spend more money than we are taking into federal coffers is one of the things most shocking to me of the last couple of years. You know, I I actually believed Paul Ryan was a deficit hawk until <laughs> they passed the tax cut and the defense um, authorization bill. I'm but so sorry, Corey. The, yeah. You must be so disillusioned. <laughs> so I'm fine with spending a lot of money on defense. We have genuine challenges that money will be important in helping us uh, overcome money isn't the answer, but it's part of the answer. Uh, But the deficit spending that goes with it, and as you were suggesting, the imbalance in our federal spending towards the near term and towards military issues uh, and away from our other pressing social needs is distressing. And this cues Rosa Brooks, who wrote a brilliant book about how the military became everything. I think we should talk about Rose's book a little bit. Um, <laughs> oh, goody. Um, because it was a really great book, and, and it also gives us a chance not to talk about David's book or Corey's book at the moment. And, <laughs> well, we have know. to talk about both of those, though, because both of those are quite relevant. <laughs> All right, well, go ahead. Go ahead, Rosa. Me- Rosa, you live in such a non-zero-sum <laughs> world, and David know, lives in such true. a zero-sum world. David it's lives beautiful. in Trump's world. It's all transactional. <laughs> but but actually, that that's one of the sort of slightly bizarre things about this, you know, is that this show, not only, I, I hate to break it to you, uh, Corey, not only uh, is Ryan not really a deficit hawk, as it turns out, but Trump is not even really what Trump claims to be. I mean, I mean here's the what? guy running I know, I know. I don't. I don't want to upset you, but but here's a guy who's been running around uh, complaining that the U.S. is footing too much of the bill for global stability and defense, and we have to make our allies pay more. You would think that the simplest way to really put pressure on our allies to pay more would be to say, yeah, because we're not going to do it. You know, you want it done, you better do it yourself because we're not going to do it. But but Trump, in fact, is perfectly happy to. Uh, sign off on uh, defense spending bills that just get bigger and bigger. I, I think Corey's absolutely right that there was zero chance that this administration, it's not like this administration, you know, is, is sacrificing its domestic priorities uh, in order to to do this. They have no domestic. Wait a minute. The, this administration is now starting to actually sacrifice people as domestic priorities? <laughs> well, well I I, no- I, actually, that, 
<laughs> I think that's been going on for a while. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, the interesting thing, and this has been true not just of this defense bill, but, but of defense bills going back many, many years, uh, but getting even more so, is that increasingly the way to fund anything in the United States is you've got to find some way to cram it into the, into, you know, the national security rubric. That's one of the themes of my book. Yeah. Uh, you know, that if you can cram it into national security in some way, shape or form, um, and you can, you can, you can in fact sneak some of your domestic spending priorities in or your domestic policy priorities. Um, um, and you can, add in all kinds of carrots and sticks to achieve your, your intended results. And that's, you know, that's the only way that is left to fund things domestically at this point. Um, yeah. David, do you have a feeling about sure. this budget? I, I've got a couple of feelings about this. First, it's such a rare moment that I get a chance to actually disagree with the wonderful Corey Shake. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with $700 billion in the defense budget when I compare it to the other things that we're spending on, some of which might prevent conflict from coming up. I mean, you know, why you... We have a new secretary of state who says he's not going to cut the State Department budget by 30 percent. But certainly that was what we were hearing until now. Uh, but certainly there are other areas where I think we could be in the conflict prevention business. But separate and apart from that, if we sat down and made on the left side of a piece of paper uh, a list of all of the things that we think the Pentagon will be facing in the next 20 to 30 years, cyber threats, space threats, um, the need to deal with artificial intelligence and big data, um, the fact that almost every aircraft carrier is going to be so vulnerable, you wonder why you would spend any money to build new ones. And then on the right-hand side, you put together a list, and we actually have our students in the National Security course do exactly this exercise. What we're actually spending on, there is this complete disconnect between what the administration's own long-term defense strategies indicate we're heading toward and where we're putting our money. And so I'm far less interested in the top line, which the president seems fixated on, which I find strange because he spent a lot of time during the campaign complaining to us and to others that the, um, the total uh, American deficit was going to exceed uh, 21 trillion, and here we are adding to it. Um, but I am interested in why we are not trying to make our budget line up with our goals, our strategic goals for the next 15 or 20 years. And the well, answer does, to, that does require one thing that we don't have. A Congress? No, strategic goals for the next 10 or 20 years. Well, that would be good. And a Congress willing to go deal with that. And you know, we all know the problem. It's impossible to kill an existing defense system. As soon as you hear the argument, but I will lose jobs in my district, you know that they have given up any hope of putting together a strategic argument for why the system is needed. Uh, and uh, so what, what I'm concerned about is that this administration is 18 months old now and hasn't backed up and done something I wish the Obama administration had done much more of and said, let's look at how we're spent what subject 
projects we're spending this on, whether it matches up. Now, the president did something else last week, too. He came out to go create um, the Space Force, which I'm sure uh, Corey and Rosa are going to want to go defend. Um, and his campaign immediately began issuing competitions to uh, turn out a logo for it. And they're turning out Space Force T-shirts, which I think only indicates that they're getting worried about all the deep state T-shirts that are out there. Um, but uh, what I'd love to hear is not how we're going to create another military command, but what we're spending on in space, where I agree we've got a huge set of vulnerabilities, but I'm not sure the Space Force is being configured to address them. Well, first of all, anybody out there who's listening who has a Space Force t-shirt or mug and wants one of ours in exchange, just tweet at us. <laughs> We'd be very happy to do a swap to take those out of circulation. And I do think it was a little weird that the president felt that his campaign donors should start being the ones to design logos for parts of the United States military, although almost simultaneously, a few <laughs> days later, um, it, it was revealed that members of the White House staff uh, who wear their White House staff pin get discounts at the Bedminster Trump golf course uh, pro shop, uh, the same but discounts that the members who pay $350,000 a year get, um, which is, again, the kind of innovation in government that we have to be thankful to Trump for. But, but we've but, never learned about because of the non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but let me, Corey, pick up on David's excellent prior point. I've wanted to talk about the space farce, sorry, force for some time. Uh, you know, $8 billion uh, for the space force. Do, do we need a space force? <laughs> don't, we, don't we have a space force? Um, doesn't the Air Force do this stuff already? And, oh, by the way, don't we have certain kinds of international commitments not to militarize space? D any one of those. Answer any one of those. Uh, so I agree with you that the president's fixation on a space force uh, is yet one more demonstration that he doesn't understand anything about national security policy. You know um, what, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, mm -hmm. there is an opportunity here because Trump thinks that stealth is actually invisible. Well, what if <laughs> the Space Force were all stealth? And then you could just say, look, Mr. President, hundreds of Space Force uh, They're all out there. They're there. Exactly you just can't see right. Them. What, you, you know exactly what I'm saying? Exactly right. Sorry, I didn't mean uh, that. That comes in only second to um, in my sweepstakes, which is that it seems to me such an obvious point that the patch for the Space Force needs to be Marvin the Martian from Bugs Bunny, right? <laughs> there was supposed to be a big kaboom. Um, <laughs> wow. How can Corey. that be? How can Corey, that with be the classic upon? Warner Brothers cartoon reference. It can't be improved upon. So I feel like we're wasting time and energy on anything else. But the, uh, the notion that we have under-resourced and improperly prioritized uh, space as an essential component of all of our military operations strikes me as valid. Right, the vulnerability. I hate to say it, but Corey is exactly right. Yay! Wow. Um, 
the vulnerability of the constellation of our satellites, the uh, time, the expanse of time to get uh, them more robust and in place. Um, good space policy doesn't need to be weapons in space. It needs to be protecting the GPS system on which all of us rely in so very many ways now. And, and the Air Force has never made this as much a priority as it self-interestedly ought to have done. And, and so, you know, thinking about how do we ensure that this receives the attention it deserves isn't a stupid question. But I see to the point that the way that the president is going about it is stupid. Um, well, that's new for us, saying the president is stupid. I bet you're pretty shocked there, Rosa. <laughs> I am. Um, no, I I mean, this is, in some ways, this is very silly. You know, there's people always uh, talk about the structure of the U.S. military is ir- fairly irrational to begin with. You know, the old line of, you know, why does the Ar- Navy has an army and the army has an air force? And um, the Navy's army even has an air force, you know, that we, we are. And the army has more ships than the <laughs> Navy. Right, the army has more ships than the navy. That that the reason that we have the services that we have uh, has to do with you know historical accidents and rice bowls, and it doesn't make any particular sense. No matter how you slice it, if you were starting from scratch, you'd probably do it very differently. Um, it, I, I I agree with both Corey and David. Yeah, space is important. Uh, it's been probably too low priority from a strategic perspective in terms of just really thinking about what's going to be happening, what are other states doing, how do we need, to, how do we protect, as Corey says, the satellites that are up there, how do we keep space junk from uh, destroying it all, uh, et cetera. Um, but the notion that we need a brand new organization as opposed to fixing the organizations that we've already got makes no particular sense to me. I mean, I, I think that's, that's, it's a desperate solution. You know, it's the solution where you kind of go, oh, this is too hard. I don't know how to do it. Let's just start over. Um, but it, it is likely, I think, in the longer run to end up being vastly more expensive than trying to figure out how to use our existing resources and organizational structures to accomplish the same goals. Um, well, right. Um, and I think that's the, the main point. So let's just take 10 seconds here uh, and for But I do want to say that I'm willing to be part of the Space Force. I've always thought that if they decide to send a law professor into space, I would be I would be willing to be the first volunteer. So so I'm if they're willing to send me to on a exciting space mission, I will join. Well, I'm pretty para- sure to- more than one law professor should be sent. To <laughs> yeah, no exactly. Fear. To paraphrase the old joke, Here. if they were sending lawyers into space, people would have no objections to a very large budget for the Space Force. <laughs> Oh, people are uh, so mean about lawyers. Yeah, par- pardon me? So unfair. Nothing. Nothing. Hey, nothing. Rosa, if you're a journalist, you're actually, you're looking up at the popularity numbers for lawyers. <laughs> That's okay. true. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to go back to, I want to go back to our first point here, because you guys are obviously tools of the military industrial complex. And I, you know, would like to just take one more run at this. Um, according to the 2018 CIPRI military expenditure database fact sheet, the United States uh, spent in 2017 $857 billion, or 7.8% of GDP, on defense. Next up, at about a quarter of that, is China with 
228 billion, and Russia with 178 billion. By the way, Russia is spending almost 16% of their GDP. But the next countries, Saudi Arabia, India, France, United Kingdom, Japan, Germany, South Korea, Brazil, Italy, Australia, Canada, which spend among them multiples of these countries, they're all our allies. So, you know, the United States doesn't have an existential threat. We have the ability to leverage across allies who are spending multiples of our potential rivals. Our rivals are spending a quarter to a fifth of what we're spending, um, and we're not on a war footing. This is nuts, and it's been nuts for decades and decades and decades. We are spending our national patrimony on propping up a defense establishment patrimony. that doesn't actually... Do matrimony? No, see, that would be confusing. But, but, but that is... That, is, that, that is, doesn't quite that, work either, I guess. But. It, it, it doesn't, but it's, this is taking literally bread out of the mouths of children. It's, it's, it's saying no bridges, no roads, no schools. No, you know, we're not doing what we want. And you can say, well, Trump wouldn't have spent on that. Well, I think that's a kind of a, a weak grounds for defending him because it's what we should be spending on. And obviously, we should be making arguments for what's the best public policy. We, 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 the United States has been deranged, drunken sailor spending on defense since the 50s. Uh, so now, David, in this case, is actually in agreement with you know his great ideological lodestar, Donald Trump, or at least the Donald Trump who has complained that we're spending too much on defending NATO and keeping troops in Japan and South Korea and so no, forth. That's not really what I said there. I said that I value alliances because they allow us to leverage our spending. That that's right, and that's the difference here. So, if if you look at this defense budget, the reason I objected to it at $700 billion, and I really object to it at $850 billion, which, of course, includes the cost of the wars, and wars right. are extra in defense budgets, right? Um, right. So uh, if you include all of that in, um, Donald Trump has a very reasonable argument when he says we shouldn't be spending all of this to defend countries that aren't also spending to defend themselves. And they need to be spending a whole lot more. And he's correct, and the way he's gone about it has alienated them from spending a lot more. But the fundamental issue here is we could probably have a defense budget that is a third smaller than what we're putting out there and still be more effective if we were thinking hard about what we really needed to defend against and what we're spending money on that is fully preparing us for 1970s-style conflict. Or, 1970s? Well, or, or if we're not ready to fight a 1970s-style war, who will be? That's right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, th this has been a, a problem that was bad before Afghanistan and Iraq and now has gotten significantly worse, not only because we still have continuing commitments there, but because the military keeps thinking, how are we going to be staffed up for the next Iraq and Afghanistan? And there was a moment at the end of the Obama administration where Obama had to step in, actually it was in the middle of the Obama administration, and say, no, no, you don't understand. We're not budgeting for those because we're not expecting that that is our next kind of conflict. But the huge disconnect here is that Donald Trump can say, I don't want to spend money on war games with South Korea, using the phrase the North Koreans use, because it's too expensive. 
then turn around and try to do a parade that's more expensive than the uh, military exercises, or at least just as expensive, and then turn around and spend $8 billion on a space force when, in fact, we could be allocating money from other places and other things we're spending on to get ready for the huge vulnerabilities we have in space. And by the way, the space vulnerabilities overlap enormously with our cyber vulnerabilities. And I don't hear anybody talking about how you go sorting that out so that you're not replicating that spending in two different places. Corey? Uh, so a few things. Um, first, I object in the strongest possible terms. I demarche you, David Rothkopf, for um, using SIPRI numbers instead of the SSS's much more reliable military balance figures. Oh, um, sorry. But, well, let me say that the SSS numbers are the U.S. spent $773.5 billion and the PRC uh, spent one hundred and seventy-five point eight. They have Thank Russia. You, my friend. At, you guys have Russia at fourth um, after Saudi Arabia at 61.2. Um, I curtsy my thanks to you for, <laughs> uh, for that correction, David. The second thing is um, that uh, I don't actually think that the relative comparison that is us and all of our allies outspend everybody else uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that um, China may be able to uh, do things more inexpensively than the United States does. And so uh, the numbers, the relative numbers may not be the only interesting thing about this. And second, the Chinese don't publish their numbers. So all of us are guessing at it. Uh, so, so the numbers are important, but they're not everything. Moreover, yes, it's wonderful that we and our allies uh, stand astride the world like colossies, but you also don't want to be really close to the margin on that. And in a lot of important ways, we are struggling to limber ourselves up to manage these new challenges, as David uh, Sanger mentioned earlier. Uh, I am less worried about us sloppily spending all over the place on emergent challenges than I am about us not experimenting and doing things wrong and figuring out what the right approach to them is, which American strategy is mostly profligate, right? We get it wrong and then we figure out how to get it right. So efficiency is not the watchword of, of defense innovation. And I'm sad to say so, but I also think it's true. And then the last thing that I would say is that I don't agree that we're facing no challenges and that... Uh, <laughs> Rosa, are you... Oh, sorry, 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 wow. sorry. <laughs> wow. That was an epic <laughs> Muppet, your whole head opened kind of yawn. <laughs> Jeez. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the challenges that we're facing. I'm sleepy. All, all I can say, Rosa, is if David or I, I had done that, can you imagine the mail? The mail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. I take it as, as an appropriate grade 
on the interestingness level of me uh, going on about emergent defense threats. But I do think there are emergent threats that we haven't figured out how to handle and limbering the system up so that we don't just buy legacy systems, but we figure out how to experiment in interesting and important ways. There's been an enormous shift of technology and innovation that was at one time the product of defense investments that is now exclusively privately funded and the national defense establishment is desperately trying to find a way to understand what's happening out in the venture capital and experimentation tech world and capitalize on it uh, because our adversaries are. Well, I, I know we only have you for a couple more minutes. We're not going to go on much beyond that. But I want to ask you two quick questions, just sort of very brief answer questions that follow up on this. And so, therefore, you think that it is appropriate for the United States to spend five times as much money, according to your own numbers, as the People's Republic of China. That makes sense to you as a proportion. Uh, yeah, it does make sense to me as a proportion because we're a global military power with a lot of security obligations that keep us both safe and prosperous. China is endeavoring to be a regional hegemon uh, and does not have security obligations to anybody else. And so, yeah, that we are spending more than they are, um, even substantially more, I'm okay okay with. All right. Well, I mean, good. And that's one question. The other question is, you guys have Russia at $61 billion, which is about a third of what the Stockholm people do. How come? Because Russia's defense spending dropped by uh, over 15% in the last year. Uh, I think our numbers may be a little bit more current than their numbers are. Uh, so Russia's defense spending dropped significantly just in the last year. Okay. I'm... I'm you know, I think this is a discussion that can and because, should go on. Because we are their friend. They don't need to worry about us anymore. Well, the question actually is on this list, how many people do we have to worry about? You know, maybe China, maybe Russia, maybe there's a couple of others, but there's not a lot of others. And so in terms of those global threats we're talking about, China and Russia are 240, which is still spending three times that. Um, and Rose, one of the things that Trump made a big point of in his speech about this was we're spending tons of money on nuclear weapons um, and uh, we hope we never have to use them but if we do we're going to have a lot more of them than anybody else Uh, and I was just wondering how you weighed that as a a sort of nuclear strategy (laughs) well we already have a lot more than anybody else I mean you know um, the number of nuclear weapons uh, sloshing around in U.S. possession um, is dwarfs the number of nuclear weapons that anybody else, including the Russians, possess at this point. You know, I think that there are valid concerns about how many of those weapons work in any case, but since we aren't going to use them, it doesn't really matter. Um, we just don't want to accidentally have something bad happen to them. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm skeptical, I'm certainly skeptical of the, claim, the, the claims that we need to be adding to our nuclear arsenal, uh, even our questionably functional aging 
nuclear arsenal is still so, so much more powerful than anybody else's. Um, that, you know, just uh, the way you describe that, I now feel I have more in common with our nuclear arsenal than I ever did. <laughs> yes, because well, it's question, questionably, questionably functioning and aging, aging <laughs> and yet somehow powerful. <laughs> I feel all those. There, there's one more, it's, which is that in the silos, David, like you, they still use five-inch floppy disks. Oh, right. okay. But I, I mean, I. So, so many responses to that. None of them suitable for this show. Yeah. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. Otherwise, David's gonna, David Sanger's going to tell us about the uh, Twitter insults he's getting and threats. Yeah. Um, um, but anyway, um, I, I'm overall, I'm inclined to agree with, with David Sanger that um, while I don't think there's some abstract number, you know, 700 billion, 800 billion, 500 billion that we should say, oh, that's enough, that's enough, that's too much uh, when it comes to the defense budget. I, I do think that um, the question isn't how much, the question is are we spending it on the right things. We, we all know that there is an enormous amount of waste in the DOD budget. We know that we're still spending money on systems that are antiquated uh, or being built extremely inefficiently that we don't really need. We also know that uh, costs such as healthcare costs uh, continue to be an enormous driver of the overall uh, perpetually inflated defense budget and that we're going to have to face that sooner or later. Um, so, so, you know, they're, they're clearly do, are there things that we should be investing in? Absolutely. Um, have we picked the right things? Not that clear. Are we in the meantime, seriously committed to addressing the areas of extreme inefficiency and waste? Uh, clearly not. Uh, David, I understand you've written a book recently. That's what I'm told. <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot of stuff. I see a lot of our deep state nerds. You know, they have autographed copies. They photograph them. They send them in. They say they're swooning. They got to meet you. They threw the well, whatever. I'm, you know, it was kind of like a Beatles thing. But, but apropos of your book, you sort of are writing about the next frontier in terms of defense budgets and spending. And I was just wondering if you could sort of offer us in a nutshell a sense of what the people who are at the front lines in cyber conflict think about our levels of spending and how they ought to change. They think that they're utterly irrelevant to where our vulnerabilities are. So that we are, you know, the amount that we spend on cyber, cyber-related defenses, even the amount we spend on space and on nuclear is pretty tiny as a comparison to the overall defense budget. In fact, cyber, nuclear, and to a lesser degree space are all pretty cheap compared to the costs of maintaining the size Army, Navy, and Air Force that we have. But if you think that our greatest vulnerabilities aren't necessarily the incoming nuclear missile or the uh, two-war scenario, but instead, the ability of a small country to go cripple our election system, our electrical system, our financial system at relatively low cost with an asymmetric weapon, then you've got to think, are we spending in all the wrong places? And, you know, one of the big things that came up as I was writing The Perfect Weapon was we kept being surprised by one attack after another, whether it was Sony or the Russians against the State Department or the JCS or against uh, the White House or the Democratic National Committee. And 
that tells you that we're building the wrong kind of radar. And the most important things we need to do don't actually cost a lot of money. And that's the discussion we need to be having, not the one about do we spend $750 billion or $700 billion or six. As we enter this next era, that the types of conflict we're likely to face are less costly in, in dollar terms uh, than the types of conflicts of the industrial era, even though they may be more costly in terms of impact to the economy or to people. I think that's I'm, exactly right. I mean, I, I can't imagine a situation in which uh, we could, after an attack, ask the question, why did we have no defenses built in this sector while we were spending all of this money? And the correlation between what we're spending and the kind of defenses we need against modern threats just doesn't match up, you know, um, and and. You would expect that somebody who came in promising to bring the kind of discipline that uh, a bi the business community had to American budgets would first say, let's zero base the defense budget and think of this from the ground up. And that has not happened yet. Well, I think that's a, it's an interesting point because I think we're using sort of industrial era metrics and processes for a new era in defense. That's, that's right, because the president, when you ask him, wants to have the biggest Navy and want, you know, wants to, why he's asked the question, why don't we have n more nuclear weapons? And it's all being measured in how you would measure military power in the defense budget of 1955. I think it's a really, I think it's a really, really, really important point. Um, and, and speaking of important points, I know Corey has gone off now. I've just seen an email. She's gone off into the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and that can lead to no good. I can only imagine the mayhem that will follow. But I do want to ask each one of you before we sign off here. You're in Vermont, you know, and, and so what are you going to do tonight that's really exciting in Vermont? And I want to ask Rosa the same question about Wyoming. The great thing about Vermont is there isn't very exciting things to go do. You can work on the projects you've been meaning to get to all year, but haven't. You can fix the things. Do that, you putter uh, around you can, the house? I, you, you putter around the house, the pond. David, what, what town are you in? Where are I, you? I am in a, a tiny little town that has got 600 people in it during the, the winter and swells in the, um, in the summer communities to, oh, almost 1,500. It's in Southern Central. is right down near Bromley and Stratton. And I'm not even in the town. I'm up in the woods above the town. Good, a strategic position. Well, I had to because my other option was to, you know, <laughs> go find one of your silos and, you know, dig down well, that, where there's that no may sunlight. Be the, that may be the best option. And where are you in Wyoming, Rosa? Uh, I'm in a town called Grable, Wyoming, which has a population of about 1,500 people, maybe. Um, and last night, I went outside and I watched a little bit of the Perseides meteor shower. Ooh, um, cool. And I, yeah, which was peaking last night, but you should still be able to see some shooting stars tonight, too, if you go out there. I love, I, uh, I gotta say, you know, we did our book show last week, but I just love what <laughs> authors who are trying not to write their books do Yeah, well, it's, to it's pass hard. the time. You stare at the sky. The only sad thing is that because of all the fire, uh, uh, forest fires in California, it is somewhat hazy here in Wyoming. So 
the stars were not as good as they would otherwise be. Nevertheless, I saw three meteors. And so tonight see. I'm going to go back out and look for some more. <laughs> yeah, right. And then tomorrow I have eight hours of watching cloud formations because I've never done <laughs> well, that. They're pretty yeah. good here in but Wyoming. David, you're begging the most important question, which is what do people do in New Jersey at night other than to go over to the Trump Club in Bedminster and have dinner and wait for the I, great man to come down? I've never been to the Trump Club in Bedminster, and I think people in New Jersey, you know, just try to avoid the drive-bys and, uh, you know, order in pizza. And, uh, you know, I mean, tonight we may watch the RBG documentary. That's what uh, I'm really looking at. I, I thought that people sort of sat around and watched The Sopranos every, you know, the old seasons. No, dude, we live The Sopranos. <laughs> that's, that's, that's who we are, and don't you forget it. <laughs> um, anyway, folks. This well, if you another... guys get tired, if you guys get tired of New Jersey and Vermont, you're welcome to come and watch Shooting Stars with me and, and distract you from writing your book. Distract yeah, me, right? Exactly. Precisely. Or it's actually, like the... so you could each come and write a chapter well, of it. That would help. Well, me. we could just ring your doorbell. You know, we can be like the visitor from Porlock. <laughs> oh, you... the person from Porlock. You Where know the visitor. You? you know the you visitor from Porlock. Of course, the person from Porlock. Well, that's another way to yeah, put it. For those of you out there, well, Corey, I mean Rosa, why don't you explain who the person from Porlock is? Uh, the person from Porlock. Um, uh, the reason that Coleridge famously, supposedly, failed to complete the poem Kublai Khan, you know, in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome was that right when he was in in full swing of creativity. Some guy from Porlock shows up at his door and he has to interrupt his uh, his creative effusions and he can never really regain, he can never recapture the feeling. But there is also a wonderful poem by Stevie Smith. Um, and everybody always said, oh, you know, alas, the person from Porlock interrupted the, the flow. Um, but Stevie Smith has a wonderful poem called Thoughts About the Person from Porlock. Uh, but in, in, in her poem, she... She makes the point. Uh, she she starts going on about who do we think that the person from Porlock really is, and and she says I felicitate the people who have a person from Porlock to break up everything and throw it away, because then there will be nothing to keep them, and they need not stay. Uh, why do they grumble so much? He comes like a benison. They should be glad he has not forgotten them. They might have had to go on. So in any case, uh, yes, I await the person from Porlock who who does in fact visit frequently. Well, I, I, I hope he or she drops by and, and keeps you from writing for yet another day. Uh, David, stay safe up there in Vermont. It's a very dangerous place. Um, and everybody, everybody who is continuing, uh, please join us again next week. And as I have said recently, keep an eye out because uh, in the beginning of September, we're going to launch DeepStateRadioNetwork.com full of blogs and additional comments and, and some new sections that you are going to be, that are entirely new. And I think are really going to add to the general discussion around. David, is it giving away too much for me to say that there might simply be a section where we're auctioning off Rose's tour of silos around Wyoming and the Dakotas? Possibly, possibly. <laughs> Rosa may be doing that for years, as, as we could expect. But, but, or it could just be auctioning off silos. We don't know that anything could happen on this place, which will be kind of the alternative next generation site 
to deal with issues of foreign policy, national security, politics, um, Rosa's work habits, uh, David puttering around the house, Corey at the Fringe Festival, and so forth. Uh, if you want more information on this, go to the site now, deepstateradionetwork.com. Just give us your name and email, and we'll send you updates on what's going on, and we'll send you some special things uh, as we get up to speed over the course of the next couple of weeks that we think you'll find real interesting. It's very, very exciting stuff, uh, and we think it's a bit of a game changer. So uh, go sign up. It'll be, it'll be interesting for you. David, Corey, wherever you are, Rosa, we know where you are. Have a great uh, remainder of the week, and we'll all be back together again next week on Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.